Tennessee made history on August 18, 1920, when it became the 36th state to ratify the 19th Amendment to the Constitution. The amendment, guaranteeing all women the right to vote in the United States, was officially added to the Constitution a few days later on August 26, 1920. It was a momentous event, capping off more than seven decades of organized action by a diverse group of women from across the nation to secure political equality. To celebrate that historic campaign, Congress created the Women's Vote Centennial Commission, that's at www.womensvote100.org, to commemorate the heroic struggle of those who took part in it to ensure that future generations will remember the events that helped women to secure the right to vote. Throughout the month of August, the Commission is coordinating a nationwide celebration with partners from across the country to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment through innovative and educational programming. Why did it take so long for women to gain the right to vote in this country? How did the small group of women who first met in 1848 at the Seneca Falls Convention create a nationwide protest movement that would eventually succeed in amending the Constitution? And what can their efforts teach us about our current political dysfunction? Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. I'm James Wallner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. I'm Julia Azari, an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. Well, hey guys. I'm really excited about our conversation today because this is such a fascinating story. And it is especially relevant, I believe, to many of the things that we've discussed on this podcast over the past few months. It touches on questions of activism, the role of protest and prompting political change, and what it takes to change American politics from the outside or from the bottom up. And to help us work through these questions, I'm pleased to uh, announce that we have a, a special guest today, and it's a, a longtime friend of ours, Colleen Shogan, and she's the senior vice president of the White House Historical Association and a member of the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission. And for our listeners, she's the author of a, of a series, of a, a, a novel series. It's called Washington Whodunit. It's mystery writing. And her latest book is called Larceny at the Library. So Colleen, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast. And I really look forward to talking about women's suffrage history, one of my favorite topics. Well, we have a lot to talk about, a lot of questions that, that we want to ask, and, if, and you know, feel free to ask uh, you know, questions and, as well. But you know, in today's episode, we're asking the, the general question of kind of what is the role of protest or grassroots activism? What role does that play in prompting political change at the highest levels? And we are looking at the struggle for women's equality for answers. But before we get to that, you know, I think we have two things that I, that I really want to touch on here. One is the announcement of uh, Kamala Harris as, as Joe Biden's uh, vice presidential running mate in the 2020 presidential campaign. I think this is a great example of how far we've come, even since women gaining the right to vote just 100 years ago. And I also want to ask you a question, too, that I think many of our listeners uh, may be asking themselves right now, which is what exactly is a federal commission? So, you know, with those two topics, you know, Colleen, what do you think about all this? Well, I think, uh, you know, Kamala Harris is, by my count, is now the fourth woman to run on a major party ticket, Geraldine Ferraro, Sarah Palin, of course, Hillary Clinton for president, and now Harris as vice president on the Biden ticket. 
Uh, I really think, this is my own personal opinion, I really think it is the last rung of the ladder for women uh, in politics in the United States. We, of course, have had a female Speaker of the House twice with uh, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, women are still underrepresented in Congress, but their numbers are growing. But the presidency and the vice presidency, the highest echelons um, in executive branch politics in the government, remain elusive for women. So uh, I am very eager to see how this campaign turns out. Uh, I think we will anticipate and expect that Senator Harris will uh, face both racism and sexism on the campaign trail. And uh, it will be very interesting as a political scientist and someone who studies women in politics about how she handles uh, those assaults that will come upon her. I think that's I think that's right. And it's definitely going to be interesting to see. And many of the women thinking about the suffrage movement, many of the many of the women going back to 1848 faced a lot of the stuff that Kamala Harris will likely be facing in terms of sexism, in terms of, of racism. And, you know, as we get into our questions here in our discussion about the suffrage movement and what it can teach us for today, you know, what how what is the what is this commission that you serve on and how is it helping to to educate and, and promote awareness of the suffrage movement uh, during this month of August uh, to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. You had asked before about what a commission is, and uh, federal commissions e- exist on all kinds of topics. They can be advisory commissions on policy, the 9-11 Commission, for example. The Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission is more of a commemorative congressional commission. And there are really many federal agencies that are created by Congress for a very short duration of time, you know, one year, two years, three years. The most recent commemorative commission before our commission was the World War I Centennial Commission. And the commission that will exist after ours uh, going forward is the Semiquincentennial Commission, say that three times fast, uh, celebrating the 250th anniversary of the United States. So the commissioners are usually appointed by uh, various members of Congress, the leaders in Congress in both the House and the Senate. On this commission, we also have two commissioners nominated by the president. So President Trump had two appointees on the commission. And then this commission also had four nonpartisan commissioners, of which I was one of the nonpartisan commissioners from the Library of Congress. I've since left the Library of Congress, but I remained on the commission. And it's just, it's been fascinating to serve. I will say this as a political scientist. Um, When I was, worked at the Congressional Research Service, I helped to write all of our reports and memos on congressional commissions. So uh, certainly studied it with other political scientists at CRS. And then being able to actually serve on a commission and see what that means from the inside out, it's that is, has been really an honor of a lifetime. As far as the commission goes, we are focused on uh, two things, uh, especially during this time of, of a pandemic, which has obviously changed our plans. The two things I would say are education as much as possible. So in that regard, we have commissioned blog posts um, from the commission website. We have uh, worked with historians uh, to uh, speak to major media outlets 
to get the story of, of women's suffrage out there. We have uh, donated books to 6,000 libraries across the United States through the American Library Association. We really want people to be exposed to the basic understanding of the women's suffrage movement, which uh, I'm in my mid-40s. I mean, in high school, I never studied anything having to do with the women's suffrage movement. Uh, I don't even think it was mentioned in my high school honors history class. It wasn't until I got to college that I was ever exposed to anything historical about the movement. Uh, so we, I think we really need to think about how we're teaching American history in the United States and what we're exposing, particularly our, our middle school and high school students, to the stories uh, that are important about the American experience. And the other part of the commission that we're really focused on are, are legacy projects. So projects that will exist beyond 2020, beyond the centennial. And in that regard, we're uh, putting up highway signs all across the United States and every state in the United States related to suffrage history. We're building statues. We're helping to build memorials. We want to create lasting effects uh, that will uh, help um, educate people about uh, the 19th Amendment well beyond 2020. And we'll have the website in the show notes for our listeners so you can go to uh, the commission's website and, and check out all the exciting stuff that they're doing. But Julia, what what's on your mind? I I personally think that Julia, you would be a great commission member for the for any commission that we that we might be able to start in the future. So so far away. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I have a couple of, of things on, on my mind, and I'm trying to figure out where where to start. Can we, can we rewind to Harris for a second? Absolutely. We can do whatever you want. Fabulous. Okay. So I, I, I want to ask Colleen some more, some more questions about this. Um, so Colleen, you um, put this in context of some, some past uh, vice presidential and presidential candidates as well, but I actually want to think about this in terms of Ferraro and Palin. So, and I, I should say here, you know, Colleen and I have known each other for a long time. We both studied uh, presidential and American uh, political history at Yale as grad students, shared some dissertation committee members, and um, Colleen basically kept me from giving up on the tenure track a bunch of times. <laughs> um, your wonderful encouragement. So I really appreciate you joining us today. And I want our, our listeners to appreciate that I probably would not have made it uh, this far without Colleen. But so given our shared interest in, in presidential history, one observation, and a couple other people have made this observation already on Twitter. Jonathan Ladd from Georgetown, I think, um, mentioned this also. Raro and Palin were both selections from losing candidates who were, you know, who were in trouble and who were kind of trying to shake up the race. I have an unpublished paper this affects you, essentially saying there's there's vice presidential picks where you're trying to attract attention and do something different and do something risky, and you do that when you're losing. Biden is a favorite to win, and Harris, as the internet has has sort of told us, in a lot of ways is seen as a safe pick. She's known, she's a national figure, um, she's got kind of appropriate service background um, in government to take over the presidency at any at any point, which is an important qualification for the vice president. So what can we make of this that now this selection of a woman and, and not only that, but, a, you know, women of, of color and of mixed racial descent um, is, you know, African-American, South Asian descent is a is the safe candidate and is the candidate of the winning, you know, leading presidential candidate. 
Would you have thoughts on that? Thanks, Julia. Thanks for those uh, kind words first. But uh, related to, to Harris, yeah, I was thinking about this yesterday, too, uh, as, as I was considering the pick and trying to digest it uh, once we knew exactly who Biden was, was going with. You're right. I mean, the, the other um, candidacies, uh, um, both with Mondale and McCain, were floundering uh, candidacies and, and were underdogs. And so th- it was a shakeup type of pick. But Biden is not is in, in that position, at least right now. He's in, he's in the driver's seat. So I think, I mean, for me, it's nothing but a reflection of how different uh, how much American politics has has changed in this period of time since we saw the candidacy of uh, particularly Geraldine Ferraro in the 1980s. I mean, uh, we're we're in a totally different position, and the United States. I think actually looking back on it, and I was in I was into a conversation with a few uh, fellow political scientists yesterday uh, about this. I think the fact that Biden announced that he was going to select a woman as a vice presidential running mate a long time ago, weeks ago, whenever he made that announcement, it seems like a very long time ago, maybe it was even months ago when, when Biden said that, that that was really smart. That was genius, at least from my perspective, because it gave the whole country the time to realize that there was gonna be a woman in that slot. And, and then of course, events unfolded with everything that has happened this summer with protests, with Black Lives Matter, uh, that, that made his choices more important when it comes to obviously not just gender, but also regarding race. But at least the biggest hurdle you know, that we have not been able, to, the, the Rubicon that has not been crossed, which is certainly uh, concerning women, uh, we have had, you know, uh, we've had an African-American president, Barack Obama. We have not had a woman in one of these two slots. It gave the whole country a time to think about it, get used to it, and move forward. Um, and I think that was really the best thing that Biden could have ever done. Uh, I think it was very helpful. Lee? Yeah, so I, I want to take us back, and I want to I do the, the history part. And one of the things that I think a lot about is, you know, how... Uh, American democracy is constantly evolving and changing. And it's hard for me to fathom a time in which a lot of people thought that women just shouldn't be allowed to vote. So I wonder, Colleen, if you could kind of take us back to the 19th century and set the political debate for us. What, what were the arguments against women being able to vote? What, why did why was it that so many people thought that the idea of women voting would create some sort of societal disruption? There was a couple reasons. I think the first reason and the most important reason and the most lasting reason was just a totally different view of what it meant to be a woman, what gender meant, what sex meant in society. Not anything that we could necessarily compare to today in 2020, although some of these tropes still exist, obviously, today. The, the, the notion that uh, the sphere uh, that women belonged in, where women exercised power and authority, was in the private sphere and uh, with the family. So women did start to participate more in in civic organizations, of course, in the 19th century, start to see the advent of, um, you know, women's clubs and other organizations, certainly temperance uh, organizations. And before that, they were involved in the abolitionist movement. So women were involved in the public sphere in, in some ways, but they were largely private organizations engaging in public 
sphere activity. And that was about as far as many people culturally really believed that women should go. And by the way, it wasn't just men who were opposed to women voting. Of course, there were a, a number of men opposed to women voting, but there were a lot of women uh, who were anti-suffragists, anti-suffs as they're called. And uh, there was a number of anti-suffrage organizations. And it was largely because those women truly believed that their authority was through the family and through the home. And if they entered into the public sphere of voting and politics, they would lose their stature in the private sphere. They did not believe at that time frame, in that time period, that women could succeed in both spheres, in both the public and the private. It was either or. And so uh, many women wanted to really stay with what they knew, which was the private sphere and the family. And then the other reasons which uh, really worked against women gaining the right to vote uh, with a federal amendment for uh, a period of time was that there were, you know, there were corporate interests <laughs> who were opposed to women voting. Certainly the alcohol industry was the number one opponent to women voting. As we moved into the 1890s, 1900s, they really believed that if women got the vote, that uh, there would be pro prohibition would exist forever. Uh, because most of the temperance organizations, of course, were led by women because of men engaging in drinking that affected their home, uh, affected their home life, physical assaults, battery, things like that. Uh, women were really at the forefront of the prohibition movement. Also, a lot of big business opposed women voting industry in the Northeast because they also thought if women got the vote that they would vote to advocate for children's rights and women's rights uh, in manufacturing situations. Uh, there would be uh, hours legislation limiting the amount of time that, that women could work and that there would also be greater restrictions on children who at that time, of course, were also working in industrial situations. So there was a cultural opposition to women's voting, a political culture opposition. And then there was also, from a political science perspective, there were interest groups who, uh, corporate interest groups that were opposed to it. Julia, Colleen just touched on a lot of the, the stakes that are involved in, from a political science perspective, um, the dynamics that the suffrage movement faced and the challenges it faced in trying to gain the right to vote. But how do you, in the classroom, Julia, I mean, how do you teach this stuff and how do you engage with your students on this topic? Yeah, I mean, so I probably don't teach it as much as I should, as as Colleen pointed out, is sort of missing from the mainstream American politics curriculum. But one of the things, so when I do touch on this and I teach more, I think, about race and civil rights and about also about the civil war and the end of slavery, I try to really emphasize that some of the narrative, at least what I was taught, was kind of like, there were these inequities, it was at odds with our ideals, and then people sort of realized the injustice and they changed their ways. That, I, I feel like that's a narrative, that's a narrative I was taught as, you know, an elementary school child in the, in the 1980s, and that's also kind of how my students conceptualize it. And so I try to reframe it around exactly, you know, as Colleen was just saying, the political stakes and how interest groups and, you know, social movements, and it's kind of a down and dirty political process a lot of the time to have change. So I wonder, Colleen, if you can tell us a little bit more about kind of the, the movement building and the, you've written about the perseverance of, of politics and the, just the difficulty of making this kind of change and of 
pushing against injustice. Many historians say that the women's suffrage movement is the longest lasting social movement in American history. So the, the, the beginning of the movement, as James pointed out in uh, the, the early part of the podcast, is usually targeted at 1848, the Seneca Falls Convention in upstate New York, which is the first time where there's a women's rights convention in the United States and that actually women's suffrage is on the platform and is approved on uh, as part of the convention platform. So that's usually believed to be the beginning of the movement. And of course, the 19th Amendment doesn't become part of the Constitution until 1920. And there's uh, a lot of highs and lows uh, throughout uh, the, the entire movement. One of the interesting things that I learned was that for, for many decades, actually, suffragists thought that their, their recourse would not be a federal amendment, would not be uh, basically a congressional solution followed by a state ratification process. They thought that actually women already had the right to vote in the Constitution, particularly with the, uh, after the passage of the 14th Amendment and the beginning of the 14th Amendment that talks about the definitions of citizenship. And women were always viewed as citizens of the United States. That was never disputed. So uh, the fact that uh, they weren't prevented, they're explicitly prevented from voting, why didn't they just have the right to vote? Uh, and um, it was actually Susan B. Anthony and, and other suffragists in 1872, they actually vote in the election. I mean, they just march up. I mean, can you imagine this? They march up to the voting place, the polling place. Uh, Susan B. Anthony, hers, in, of course, in, in Rochester, New York. And uh, they demand a ballot. Say, give me a ballot. And the poll workers in Rochester, they kind of knew that this was maybe going to happen. They were sympathetic to uh, women voting and women's suffrage. So after a little bit of discussion amongst themselves, they read the 14th Amendment to themselves. They say, well, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't say that they can't vote. Um, and they give Anthony, you know, a ballot. And she ends up voting in, in 1872 for Ulysses S. Grant. And of course, she's arrested, you know, two weeks later by a federal marshal uh, when this when this gets out. And uh, she never does any any um, jail time for it. She is convicted for for her uh, for her supposed crime. Um, but the poll workers, they go to they go to jail um, and it takes a pardon from Ulysses S. Grant to actually get them out of jail. But they realize soon after that, and then there's a Supreme Court decision in 1874 that, that really settles the matter, that they're not going to be able, that judicial avenue is not the way to go. Uh, the courts are not going to be in their favor. Um, the Supreme Court is unanimous in their decision that women have no right to vote in the United States at this point in time. So then they have to completely reconceive of what their strategy is going to be. And that's when they start figuring out that they're either going to have to go state by state in every state and try to get referendums passed uh, that, that give women, that provide voting rights for women state by state, or they're going to have to pursue a federal amendment. And there's periods in the 1880s and into the 1890s where um, there's not much success for these women, quite frankly. They're not making, after a few Western states provide voting rights for women for a lot of different reasons, because they want to attract more women to come to the Western states. Um, uh, and so voting rights is sort of a, is a ploy that they uh, engage in in order to attract women to move out West. After that, they don't see a lot of gains for decades. 
And um, the women who start the movement in the beginning, uh, we're familiar with uh, like Lucretia Mott, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Sojourner Truth. They don't survive to be able to see their dream realized. And the best thing they can do is learn about the principles of political organization and pass that knowledge along to younger suffragists who will then carry on the fight and carry on the cause for the various organizations and associations uh, that will continue. Colleen, if I, if, I, if I remember correctly, I believe Frederick Douglass was at the 1848 Seneca Falls Convention. Is that correct? Yes, he was. He was an attendee at Seneca Falls and an important attendee because there was a lot of debate about whether to even include women's suffrage on the platform. And it really took a impassioned speech from Frederick Douglass to convince the women to vote for the women's suffrage component of the platform. Well, and I think this is a really interesting story. And there, there's a quote, Lee, I want to that I think gets at some of the stuff that you've been talking about, and I think really emphasizes the struggle that Colleen just mentioned here. Um, it's unrelated to to he didn't deliver this quote at the speech at Seneca Falls, but you know, a famous uh, quote of Frederick Douglass, he says, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. This struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, or it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. And I think this is such an apt quote uh, with regards to uh, to help us understand both social change more generally, but also the suffrage movement. And Lee, I think, you know, in thinking about how hearts and minds change over time, I think it, it involves a struggle. But I, I don't, I mean, what, what what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, one of the things that, that really strikes me from what Colleen you were saying before was just how much of a, a sort of overarching just cultural understanding there was that women's role was in the home and men's role was was out of the home and that the idea that women should be full participants in politics really had to involve a, a fundamental shift in just how, how the culture viewed gender. And I think that's fascinating. The, the other thing that I, I want to ask you about, and you, you talked about the role of, of women's organizing, you talked about the way in which uh, big business felt that they were going to be challenged by this. And you know, I, I think a lot about the parallels between today and you know, the early 1900s. And you know, I think a lot about the, the sort of fundamental remaking of American democracy that happened in the progressive era, not only women's suffrage, but direct election of senators, the referendum initiative process, a whole host of good government reforms, the, the primary, and culminating with uh, the full enfranchisement of, of women in 1920. Uh, I, I'm curious how, how you see the, the role of all those different reforms, as well as, you know, sort of economic reforms that, that maybe powered a lot of the, or were certainly entwined with the political reforms. And, you know, I think we often look back on the progressive movement as this one thing. And really, there were a lot of different social groups, sometimes working together, sometimes at odds. But I, I'm curious how you see the role of women's suffrage in the broader progressive movement and the broader rethinking of American democracy that took place in the early 20th century. Well, I think um, this, the suffrage movement did not align itself 
to any particular larger movement because they had they were under the belief that they needed to find their supporters uh, where they could. Now, I will say that for the as far as the progressives go, they thought that they would have a supporter in President Roosevelt and in, in TR. So uh, Teddy Roosevelt actually had written in his senior thesis at Harvard um, that women should be given equal rights and, and women should be able to exercise the franchise. So they thought, great. I mean, this is our progressive you know, reformer who is, is going to support, finally support our cause. We'll finally have someone in the White House who will, uh, uh, who will believe in, in what we're doing. And unfortunately, when TR actually made it to the presidency, to the White House, he refused to support the federal amendment and he refused to really publicly support women voting. The closest they got was in 1908 when some of the suffragists really pressured uh, TR to include women's suffrage in his last annual address, what we would call the State of the Union address these days, but the annual message uh, back then. And he, he declined to do it. He said, you have to get another big state that would approve of, of women voting. I'm not willing to go there. But then interestingly enough, in the Bull Moose campaign four years later, TR becomes the biggest supporter of women's suffrage. Uh, Jane Addams, a prominent suffragist um, from Chicago, from Hull House, you know, she actually seconds TR's nomination at the Bull Moose um, uh, convention. So what changed uh, with, with TR? Well, I mean, from my reading of this and my, uh, uh, my examination of it, I really just think that TR thought that he might not win in 1912, but he was still a fairly young man and he might win in 1916 or 1920. And he thought, well, I'm gonna get out ahead here. And if I stand for women's suffrage then, um, then maybe women will support me in my subsequent campaigns. So I, you know, I think that women, certainly a lot of the suffragists who participated in both, uh, both suffrage organizations, there were two at that time um, that were growing in ascendancy. I think they would have aligned themselves with other progressive causes, but I don't think there's a, a lot of evidence that they received a, a lot of support from other progressive organizations um, necessarily within that movement. So, um, uh, you know, that's the complicated history uh, that really transpired. And gender is always, this is kind of a little bit of a controversial statement, but I'll, I'll say it. I think gender is always more complicated uh, in, in, in ways that we can't imagine because it cuts at the core of what we were talking about before. Uh, it cuts at the intersection of the private and the public. It, it also involves institutions such as uh, the family. And I think that moving the cultural opinion about gender is harder than moving the cultural opinion about other, uh, other things in American history, other, um, as Roger Smith would call them, ascriptive hierarchies. That is, that's a very interesting insight. And I'm, I'm going to come back to this question, I think, at the end, Colleen, towards the end, uh, about how the role of women in, in, po in politics and public life today and whether or not and how that's related to the fact that the public is now private and the private is now public. We, you know, we think of you know, the, the, the national household, if you will. 
Um, so I got to work a lot of this stuff out in my mind so I can articulate a question that sounds very insightful and brilliant. But I want to I want to touch on race before we get there. And, and while we're talking about the history here, and you know, I mentioned Frederick Douglass earlier, and we've kind of alluded to the you know the Fourteenth Amendment, you know, the Thirteenth, Fourteenth, and Fifteenth Amendments. You have the to the Constitution. You have the Civil War, obviously, which is a big deal in, in freeing and uh, you know and ending slavery. You have the struggle or the Civil Rights Movement over um, African Americans, Black Americans. Americans gaining uh, the right to vote and, and political equality in this country uh, from the end of the Civil War all the way through the middle part of the 20th century and in many respects with the Black Lives Matter movement still ongoing today. But we, you know, so we often think of the the two great social movements in this country being, you know, the suffrage movement, which hasn't gotten a lot of attention, and then obviously this the civil rights movement. But can you speak a little bit about the role of race in the suffrage movement and what, you know, were there tensions there? And if so, what were they and how did they navigate them? I think that one of the things that I learned very quickly when I started to acquaint myself with suffrage history more in depth was that there was no way to tell this story accurately as a political scientist or as a historian if you don't fully appreciate the role that race played in the movement. And that's throughout the history of the movement. Um, you mentioned certainly the 15th Amendment, and you also mentioned Frederick Douglass, who was a strong supporter of women's suffrage and women gaining voting rights. However, when it came down to it in the 15th Amendment, of course, uh, the reformers like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, and Lucretia Mott wanted women to be included in the 15th Amendment. They thought there was going to be one suffrage amendment, okay? One suffrage amendment that was going to enfranchise African Americans and women, and that there was going to be this huge expansion of suffrage. It would all be solved in one major suffrage amendment. So, and just to interrupt, um, and sorry about that, but African Americans and you know men and African American women and white women, right? I mean, the 15th Amendment doesn't allow African American or Black women to vote; just Black men, right? It's just based upon race. It doesn't have any protections uh, with regard to sex, as the 19th Amendment. So they thought they were going to be included in the 15th Amendment. Is the bottom is the bottom line? And when it came to to pass there was simply not support in Congress to include women in the 15th Amendment. And um, this is where Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton end up falling out with Frederick Douglass for, for a good long time because they feel as though that Frederick Douglass abandoned them uh, at their time. And it should have been everyone or no one. And Frederick Douglass did not take that approach. Um, in fact, he had a very famous quote, and I'll paraphrase it, in which he said, Basically, um, the violence being done upon uh, black men was so uh, severe that they needed the, the right to vote to protect themselves in a way that women, all women, did not. And this really uh, enraged some of the suffragists who had thought they were marching along on this progress together in tandem with each other. So that's the first rupturing uh, where we actually see race coming in and, and causing dissension within the movement and causing friction within the movement. Fast forward to late, much later on in uh, the women's suffrage movement after the, the amendment has been passed by both houses of Congress and we're in the ratification stage. 36 states have to ratify the amendment uh, out of 48 at the time. So that's a pretty high bar. Uh, that's a lot of states. And because some Northeastern states uh, did not choose to ratify the amendment, 
they had to look other uh, other places and one of the places that they had to look was was in the south and of course the battle over ratification really centers along Tennessee. And uh, whenever you look at that debate in Tennessee, in the Tennessee uh, State House, it is amazing. They are not talking about gender at all, um, at all in 1920, as they're uh, debating whether or not to ratify the 19th Amendment in Tennessee. The entire debate is about race. And the question for these Tennessee state legislators is, well, we already had the 15th Amendment, and now we've had to pass state laws to prevent African-American men from voting. And now we're going to give African-American women the right to vote, and we're going to have to prevent them from voting. And the belief was that actually African-American women would be harder to prevent from voting at the polls than African-American men, that they would insist upon uh, their right to vote perhaps more aggressively than African-American men. So when you look at that debate in the state legislature, it's just, it's, it's really, I said, oh my gosh, this is all about race. This is not even at the end about gender. And once again, you see this intertwining of race and gender that exists throughout American history. You can't simply tell the story, I think, of one without telling the story of the other. And that's, it's so fascinating. And I want Julia to really kick off uh, our discussion, the, this part of our discussion today about kind of what we can learn from all of this and what are the lessons for today, both with regard to ongoing struggles for, for women's rights and also um, for you know Black Lives Matter movement and other social movements. But before I do that, Colleen, you mentioned uh, the Tennessee, um, the effort and the struggle in Tennessee. And for our listeners, can you quickly just give them an idea of what happened in Tennessee? I mean, this is something right out of like a, a movie screenplay, the way this all went down and how the ratification movement ultimately uh, succeeded. Yes. I mean, it was it's truly a, a political drama that should be on television. And it's going to be on television because the book that was written about uh, the ratification in the Tennessee fight is called The Woman's Hour. It's by a journalist historian named Lane Weiss. I can uh, wholeheartedly recommend the book. And uh, Hillary Clinton and Steven Spielberg have acquired the rights to the books. And they are, although the the pandemic has slowed things down, they are in the midst of producing a television version of The Woman's Hour. So uh, that will be coming your way uh, in a couple of years once we're able to go, you know, it's able to go back into production. But I mean, it's a real nail biter. Nobody knows what's going to happen in Tennessee. And uh, in Nashville, Everybody that is anybody, all the anti-SUFs, the pro-SUFs, all descend uh, upon Nashville for this last one epic battle over the 19th Amendment and whether women will gain the right to vote for the 1920 election, right? So that's really what's at stake because it's August of 1920. And this is really the last fight they can have if women are going to be able to vote in November of 1920. And it goes, I mean, really at, at several points in time, Carrie Chapman Catt, who's leading the effort from the national perspective, from the pro-suffrage side, she really doesn't think that they actually have the, uh, the, the votes um, to be able to ratify the amendment in Tennessee. And it goes down to <clears throat> the very last day when a state legislator named Harry Byrne, who is the youngest uh, legislator in Tennessee, uh, he's from East Tennessee, Uh, He has been voting against the suffragists throughout the session, throughout the special session in procedural votes. He represents constituents who are not in favor of women's suffrage, so he's voting in accordance to what his constituents would want or desire. 
So Harry Byrne has been voting against the suffragists in all of the procedural votes uh, that have been leading up to this one final vote actually on the underlying amendment. So they have him firmly in the anti-suffragist column. On the very last day when they take a final vote on the amendment, the suffragists look around, they're in the, um, they're in the gallery and they're, they're trying to, they're very good vote counters and they're, they're trying to count their votes. And they think that there are going to be actually one vote short to approve the amendment uh, by their vote counts. And they are shocked when the roll call uh, is, is called and Harry Byrne votes in favor of women's suffrage and the 19th Amendment. They actually think it might be a mistake. But what they didn't know was that Harry Byrne's mother, a woman by the name of Feb Byrne, had been watching her son uh, uh, and, and keeping track of how he was voting the past uh, nine or 10 days for the special session. And she was not pleased. She was not a suffragist, but she was supportive of women's suffrage. And she wrote him a letter that morning and had it delivered to him on uh, the floor of the state house. And which she said, Harry, you know, be a good boy, support Mrs. Cat and support women's, women's suffrage and the right to vote. And Byrne was really torn. Should I, <laughs> should I vote what my constituents want or should I vote for what my mother wants? And he uh, very uh, astutely decided to go along with what his mother suggested that he should do. And so Harry Byrne, you know, really, I think teaches us that one vote matters sometimes and uh, that uh, actually uh, conscience also matters in politics. So, so interesting, high drama there. But Julia, let's take us into our kind of the final part of our discussion here about you know, the, the lessons we can learn from all of this for today and what can we take away from it? Yeah. So I have a question that maybe takes us in a different direction about the bipartisan nature of the um, of the commission. And I just I'm, I'm sort of curious if there's anything you can say to that. You know, we're a we're a nonpartisan, multi ideological uh, podcast. I know you're in a position, Colleen, where you have to also be nonpartisan. And, and I appreciate that. But I also like I'm really struggling with the fact that these are the very issues that are kind of at the crux of national political divisions, not just not just gender and this the way that, for example, the resistance to Trump has been framed around gender, but also voting rights, how that's really been, a, kind of, that's really the crux of, of political conflict. And yet, you know, how we kind of come together across different party and ideological lines to celebrate events in the past? I think that's a great question. Uh, the composition of the commission, there are um, six Republican commissioners, four Democratic commissioners, and four nonpartisan commissioners. Uh, so the Republicans have um, the plurality on the commission, but they don't have the majority on the commission. I will say that early on, and we've gone through different leadership changes in the commission. We had a different chair and vice chair when we started with the commission. Both felt the need that they, could, they had to step down from those roles um, about a year in. And that's how I became the vice chair of the commission. I took Senator Mikulski's uh, slot as the vice chair. And uh, I would say that sometimes we would we disagreed and we have a good debate within the commission, but we are all very much unified on the idea that we would tell the most accurate history about the women's suffrage uh, movement, that we would share it as widely as possible, 
and that we would not get into uh, debates or discussions. We knew we were going to be doing this in 2020 and that there was going to be a presidential election, but we would not get into debates about, about the presidential election or the up, or upcoming candidates. That we would focus on telling the history the best way that we possibly could in the most creative ways that we knew. And we were all in agreement to that. So as long as we stick to that mission, as long as we stick to that, that focus, I think it shows that actually, you know, in my own opinion, I think that government can work when people come together of a like mind and for a finite purpose and are very dedicated and focused on that purpose. I come away from the service in the commission feeling uh, very energized uh, about that. Uh, and I also think it also it indicates that women can work well together when even women of diverse ideological points of view, which we certainly are on the commission, uh, that when they when put in a situation like this, we can work cooperative, cooperatively and collaboratively together to come up with good solutions and good ways to celebrate our history. Lee? I want to ask a little bit about the, the consequences of women's suffrage. 1920 election turns out to be a kind of boring election. Uh, the 1920s turn out to be a kind of political decade in which, if anything, it becomes incredibly pro corporate and pro-business policy making, contrary to the, the fears of big business. Um, you know, and, and also, you know, throughout Western Europe, I mean, you, you look at those years, 1917 to 1920, and, and most you know, Western or a lot of Western democracies also create enfranchisement for women and, you know, thing, things don't, don't blow up. I mean, politics in the 1920s are somewhat stayed generally. Um, so uh, why is that? And, you know, like what, what, what happened? Well, I think um, I would recommend one book from another political scientist, uh, Christina Woolbrick at Notre Dame. She wrote the book, A Century of Votes for Women. And Christina really picks up the story from 1920 forward uh, and shows about how voting participation and also women's voting related to party uh, changes over time. So what, and one of the big takeaways that I took from Christina's book, which is, which is excellent and very easily accessible, you don't have to be a political scientist to read it, she does a terrific job with it. One of the things that I learned was that women kind of chug along from 1920 to 1980, voting at in lower proportions or percentages than than men and of course you know african-american women uh particularly in the south are not really uh uniformly enfranchised until 1965 or other women of color so even though 1920 comes and goes there are a lot of barriers for uh, women of color voting and men of color voting from uh, that time frame until 1965 but what happens is that the the real turning point for women uh in voting and participating in that way in american democracy is 1980. And if you look at the analysis of generational or cohort voting across time, what you learn is that that's because 1980 starts the period of time in which women have come into, into American democracy having had the right to vote their entire lives, right? You can understand that in, in 1920, uh, women uh, the, who start to, who are, are gain the right to vote 
you know, were born around 1900. So in 1980, some of those women are uh, then cycling out, passing away, and there's new generations coming up. So starting with 1980, you start to see women voting at parity at the same level as men. And that's probably because it takes, the, the, the 19th Amendment takes 60 years really to come into full effect. That's how long the ramifications of that amendment took because women weren't acclimated to the idea of voting until they are born at a time when women have already had the right to vote, which I thought was a fascinating statistic that Christina makes uh, good use of in her book. Colleen, I have a question, I think, in terms of looking at the way we think about politics more generally today and how we think about political change more generally today. And we can think about the gender equality, uh, you know, marriage equality, things like that. You mentioned earlier that you alluded to a Supreme Court decision in the 1870s, I believe. And, you know, and I'd be interested to, to learn a little bit more about how the the suffrage movement navigated the different strate- uh, strategies of going through the courts or kind of a broad-based social campaign. Because today, it seems to me that if you want to change politics, you go to the courts on both the right and the left. Uh, we do this. We think the courts are ultimately the arbiters of what is right and wrong in American politics under the Constitution. And litigation strategies are pretty much the strategies that that groups employ instead of the, the kind of broad based social movements like we saw with both the suffrage movement and the civil rights movement more generally. Obviously, Occupy Wall Street movement was a little different, but that kind of fizzled out. The Tea Party movement was a little different, but that kind of fizzled out. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with the Black Lives Matter movement. But can you speak to that kind of the interplay between uh, litigation strategies and looking to the courts as the arbiters of social change in America versus uh, kind of broad-based political and social change? Yes. I mean, as far as the suffragists went, after that case, Minor versus Happersat, and that was 1874, after they lost that case in the Supreme Court unanimously in the court, they simply abandoned the judicial strategy. They just viewed it as this was, you know, the Constitution wasn't going to work for them uh, in this in this instance, and they, they immediately, you know, starting going forward, moved towards convincing elected representatives to support their cause, whether that was state legislators, if they were going on a state-by-state basis on the referendum um, approach, or if that was members of Congress and United States senators, they also approached presidents and found absolutely no support until Woodrow Wilson at the very, very end of the movement. I mean, the very end, not until really 1918 did Woodrow Wilson get on board. So, I mean, that's just a very different strategy than uh, what I agree with what you were saying about contemporary um, social change, looking to the courts for that to provide the impetus for that social change and, and the legal authority for it. But that simply was not for women's suffrage what they thought that uh, they could do. And I think one of the reasons, I mean, so they had to convince people, no matter who, you know, what branch of government, they were going to have to convince men who held power that their cause was, was, was just. And I think they thought that the way to go about that when the justices on the Supreme Court just, you know, gave them a big, you know, a big hand uh, in the face because not one justice was persuaded in 1874. They thought that probably, uh, I think, going to uh, elected politicians who had to answer 
to their own constituencies, that this would ultimately be a more powerful and fruitful way to achieve their goals. Yeah, I think it, and it could speak a little bit to the acceptance. And again, I'm speculating here. I don't know the history as well as I should, but the acceptance of, 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 of women and the right to vote. And obviously it takes, as you said, through the 1980s to really see that increase. But the movement itself helps to educate people to what's coming and why it's coming and why it ought to be coming. And I think you see something similar with regard to the civil rights movement versus a, a, a litigation strategy. I mean, you have some like marriage equality, which seems and appears to be catching up with the rest of America. Um, but you could have in many respects, other decisions that that aren't kind of they're not leading, you know, they're they're leading the way not catching up. And those can be very difficult to, uh, to get people to, um, to kind of get on board with that change. But as we wrap up here, I want to, you know, really just look to, to Julia and Lee um, about, you know, kind of the takeaways and, and what we've learned here. And obviously, Colleen, I want to give you the last word. And the, one, the last thing I will say here is for our listeners on the um, on our show notes, we'll have uh, you know a link to the womensvote100.org website. It's the commission's website where you can learn about the different webinars. They have a, two different podcasts, one for kids called the Magic Sash podcast and, and one for adults. They have a shop where you can buy some, some merchandise, a lot of merch that we need to get on our podcast as well. And then they have the, what's really exciting, this Forward into Light nationwide campaign where uh, they will be lighting up across the nation uh, different uh, monuments and public buildings um, that re referencing the, the suffrage uh, slogan or the, the popular saying, Forward into Light or Forward through darkness and forward into light. But uh, Julia, let's let's start with you and then Lee, and then we'll give the last word to, to Colleen here. Yeah, so I think what I'll take away is just the, the sheer complexity of it, of, of building a coalition of the many different dynamics of race and gender and political dimensions. And just, you know, this is something I think sometimes in social science, we face pressure to to simplify and develop simple models and really that, you know, politics is, is very complicated. So that's what I'm taking away. Yeah. And, you know, what I take away is just how slow and yet steady cultural and political change is. I mean, the idea that, that this movement begins in, in 1848, but really it, it takes until 1980 to, for the political system to fully absorb the possibilities and the potentials of women's suffrage. I mean, that, that is a, a, a remarkable time period. And yet to look back from today and think that there was a time in which it was just seen as normal that women don't participate in, in public life, it, it just kind of blows my mind. And it, it, you know, it kind of also leaves me thinking, like, what are the things 100 years from now we'll look back and say, well, how, how did we ever accept that as normal? Actually, I just to kind of close, give Colleen the last word, but just like a quick, quick round of like, what are the things that 100 years from now will think? Like, how did we ever accept that as a, as a normal part of our political life? And I, for one, think that we'll look back and think like, how did we have first past the post elections with all their pathologies? James, Julia, and then, then end on Colleen. Well, I would just say, Lee, you're always on message. It's very, very impressive. Very impressive. Is that what people will take away a hundred years from now that I was that I was on message? Rank rank choice voting. That's that's what we'll, they'll take away. Lee Jutman and rank choice voting. But no, I think it's a it's a very interesting question. I, I I'm not sure. I I don't know. It's hard to to kind of you know step back and and to try to 
to kind of talk about that and think about that stuff more deeply. And of course, that's what we try to do on this podcast. But, you know, I'd be interested to see what uh, Julia and and, and obviously Colleen think about this and then obviously want to hear from Colleen and her last words. Yeah, I think I think probably the thing that people will look back on in 100 years is our level of consumption and, you know, that we thought it was okay to drive everywhere. That's that's my that's my best guess. Yeah, probably eat meat also. Uh, Actually, that's what I was going to say was eating meat. I think that I, I truly think and I'm, I'm not a vegetarian, so I have no credibility in saying this, but I definitely think that 100 years from now, with the advances in science and um, different uh, explorations of production of substances that taste and feel like meat, I think that we're probably going to look back on factory farming and saying uh, and say, what were these people actually thinking about being stewards of uh, the world and the land? Well, that that doesn't bode well for uh, the Dutton family ranch on the popular television show Yellowstone. But you know, a hundred years from now, the show will no longer be on the air. Probably a hundred year season is probably unprecedented. But uh, but Colleen, can you you know thank you for joining us so much. This has been a fascinating conversation, and I want to give you the last word, or the last thought and and what we need to be thinking about moving forward and what our listeners need to be thinking about moving forward. Sure. So I think that uh, as we come up on the 100th anniversary on August 26, 2020, I would just urge your listeners and everyone who uh, is a fan of this podcast, who obviously interested in politics, interested in history and politics, I really think um, the women's suffrage, the story of the women's suffrage movement kind of has it all when you think about a story that you can learn a lot about American political development and about politics. It has its stories of, of leadership, there's stories of intrigue, uh, there's certainly the role of, of race, and even as we talked about, the role of interest groups and, and, and corporate strength and might um, that come into the, the evolution of the movement. So I would just ask everyone to take a look, as James said, with our, web, our website, womensvote100.org. And if you're in the position to be an educator, uh, whether at the university level or at the K through 12 level, to take a look at some of our educational materials and think about including uh, women's suffrage in the courses that you teach, whether it's in American history and American government or in in civics, because I think um, once students are exposed to some of the riveting tales uh, to the women's suffrage movement, they will really enjoy learning about it uh, as much as I have the past two years as I've been serving on the commission. But thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's been a fascinating uh, discussion and this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.